Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky was once our evening entertainment, but now it's Netflix, iPads, Bluetooth, whatever. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. And today I have uh, Professor Tim Hunter joining me, who's an American radiologist. But more importantly for this conversation, he was one of the co-founders of the International Dark Sky Association in Tucson, along with David Crawford. Tim, how did this all come to be? What, what triggered it all off? Well, I'm a very amateur, avid amateur astronomer, and I've been basically an amateur astronomer since I was about six or seven years old. I claimed back to 1950. And I moved to Tucson, Arizona in 1975. And I, because Tucson had a very good job offer in radiology and it was also an astronomy-centric city. I grew up in the 50s and 60s in the suburbs of Chicago and never really worried about the night sky because it was dark in those days in the suburbs. They weren't as big or fewer lights. I was more worried about elm trees blocking my view of the sky from my backyard than I was about any kind of lights. And, and unfortunately, those skies are gone. The elm trees succumbed to Dutch elm disease many years ago, so they're gone mm. too. Mm. But I was always interested in it. And eventually I moved to Tucson and a very amateur astronomer. And I, in the mid 80s, I came across a piece of land that's about 60 miles southeast of Tucson in a very high grassy play, plains down near a little community called Sonoida, Arizona, which has been a long time uh, basic ranching community of, of about a few hundred people on large ranches all around on high grasslands and mountains in the distance in all directions. It sounds lovely. And a very dark sky. And it's an altitude, uh, we would say 5,000 feet. Would that be about, what, uh, 1,700, 1,800 meters, something like that, in your terms, and, and dark sky. And so I was then interested in building, quote, a big observatory. And it was more talk than anything else. But I suddenly realized that I wanted to protect my sky and that Tucson was growing and the skies weren't as dark as they had been when I first moved there. And so I was very interested in protecting the sky, sort of self-serving. And about that time frame, and I knew there were ordinances, that there had been an ordinance passed in 1972 in Tucson and then a revision in 1976, but I didn't know much about them. So I started reading about the ordinances. And then at the same time, the medical center where I work, which is called University Medical Center, which is part of the University of Arizona complex, had changed their lights from globes that were very dim, mercury vapor, to high pressure, or excuse me, low pressure sodium, which are yellow lights favored by professional astronomers, but they weren't shielded. I was kind of aghast. I said, these are even worse than the previous ones. So I went to the hospital director and asked her why these got changed. She said, well, the professional astronomer had asked us to change for the night sky. 
And I said, well, who's responsible for this? And she said, well, Dr. David Crawford, the Kitt Peak National Observatory. <laughs> so I made arrangements to go over to meet him. I never met, I, I was familiar with him. He was actually a world-renowned, still is a world-renowned professional astronomer who did a lot of photometry and was in charge of building the four meter, the largest telescope in Kitt Peak. And he built a similar one down in Chile. And this would be probably mid uh, 70s to maybe early 80s. And I went and met with him and his assistant, Bill Robinson Sr., wonderful engineer. And they had a dark sky office at Kitt Peak and they were interested in getting the ordinance in place plus enforcing it. And they were interested in low pressure sodium because it is monochromatic for all practical purposes, two narrow yellow lines next to each other right in the middle of the spectrum. So it's good for visual observing in the sense you could see things with the light, but it was easy to filter for the astronomer. And I said, yeah, that's fine, but you didn't put any shields on for the amateur astronomer. You didn't consider us at all. This is even mm -hmm. worse. Mm -hmm. And so we started talking, exchanging slides and got interested in it. And he began to see my point of view. and I began to see his point of view. And he had meanwhile worked with professional uh, lighting engineers and had joined lighting engineering societies to understand what lighting engineers who design lighting systems, you know, what they want and what they need and what we can do to have good lighting, but not ruin the sky for everybody else. And I said to him one day, well, somebody should do something about this. He <laughs> says, well, maybe we should form an organization. So one thing led to another, and that's how IDA got formed. And I had recently at that time, had been active in the local amateur astronomy club called the Tucson Amateur Astronomy Association, quote, Inc., Incorporated, because I was the one that got the incorporation papers. We'd always talked about it, and I wrote away to the Secretary of State of the State of Arizona and said, what's involved in this? They sent me a packet. I said, well, this isn't too hard. Filled up the paperwork and we're incorporated. So I said, you know, a little bit of knowledge in vast gaps. I said, well, let me, I can do the same thing for IDA, which I did. And then we worked on getting a nonprofit status through the Internal Revenue Service, which is a lot more complicated. But one thing led to another, and Dave took this as real passion. And we basically ran IDEA out of his home for many, many years. Fantastic. So, and that sort of just sparks off a lot of thoughts in my mind because I'm one of the co-founders of the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, which is initially set up to to really be sort of the support network for the IDA, in Australia, you know, to be the Southern Hemisphere assistance to you. And I understand how many challenges there are in starting up an organisation, not just the legal and the paperwork, et cetera, but also just speaking to people, particularly on an idea that is so new and generally fairly foreign to, to the public and policymakers. What sort of challenges did you face at the beginning? Well, Tucson's very uh, astronomy-oriented. So locally, people were attuned in to protecting the sky from, quote, light pollution. Um, at least the city leaders and the county leaders. So there's a city and a county. Um, so a good part of the metropolitan area is actually outside the city limits in the county. They were attuned to it because they had passed ordinances. It turns out when I actually read the ordinances, that was pretty much a gas because they really have all kinds of loopholes in which I would see all around town. So one of my about Loopholes specifically about lighting or, or? Yes, because they would say, for example, if a, and they were, in those days they would use terms like wattage rather than lumens because it's easy to tell. You know, it's easy for somebody to go buy a light bulb or buy a fixture with so many watts 
and it was much easier to look at that. And so one of the first things is anything that was 100 watts or less, doesn't matter what kind of bulb it was, that didn't have to be shielded. Well, that meant that you could 100 watt uh, high pressure sodium, 100 watt low pressure sodium, or 100 watt LED for that matter of fact, is an enormous amount of light. And if it's just unprotected and you're not, not shielded, that casts the shadows for, you know, a couple of miles probably. And you could, if you had a port, for example, a neighbor's porch light, you know, this is simple light. We have what they call a jelly dar light. In other words, a bulb sitting in a glass jar thing can be extremely <laughs> bright and annoying across the street, particularly if mm. it shines in your bedroom window or your, you know, in your living room window, and particularly if you're sensitized to lights. And one thing I learned real quick, two things. One, once you become sensitized to bad lights, you can never go back. Once somebody's pointed this out to you, you suddenly realize what's a good and bad light. It, it's no, there's no return. The other thing is you can't drive around town and complain about every bad light because you'll initially wear yourself out. <laughs> um, but we start going outside of Tucson, just you know, going to amateur astronomy clubs, which was sort of the venue that I was in. And, and IDA was very astronomy-centric in its early days. Um, and it's grown way past that, which is the only way we're going to possibly have any effect on outdoor lighting. Um, but I would go to amateur astronomy clubs, even the amateur astronomers, it wasn't like they didn't understand it, but it was like, it's such a bad problem, we can't possibly do anything about it. And then I would go to, um, you know, city leaders in other cities that maybe, maybe were slightly aware of it or didn't like all the lights, but didn't where there was any way of doing anything about it. And I would mention that we have good lights, relatively good street lights, and some other lights around Tucson in those days. And I had examples, slides of them, and examples and model numbers and so forth. But we can't, we can't get them here. You know, no, this won't work here. Our engineers said this won't work in Southern California. This won't work in Northern Michigan. I can remember a couple of things. I finally got smart enough to realize that local suppliers in Tucson, who bought these things from, you know, national manufacturers and shipped them to Tucson and put them up, they would be quite willing to ship a supply to Michigan, even though they didn't think there was much market for them there. And so I would come back and say, well, if your people can't get them, I've got somebody in Tucson can easily <laughs> get these for you and ship them to you. And so I started to change it. Plus, David spent almost all time. He pretty much gave up an awful lot of his professional astronomy as far as taking pictures of stars and measuring them and devoted pretty much his waking hours to doing this and travel all around the world giving the message. And he was always frustrated mm -hmm. professional astronomers had the idea, well, we can't do anything about this. We'll just go to a darker place and, you know, put our telescope in the mountaintop where nobody can reach it. We don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. um, and amateurs would have the attitude, well, it's such a bad problem. We can't do anything about it. I'll just drive out of town the ways. And that's still an issue. It but is. And, and yeah, it's funny when I do public talks or, or like you have done or, you know, going around all the um, amateur astronomy groups, et cetera, I'm, I'm a little shocked sometimes that they will be talking about how, you know, they hate city lights and how they wish, you know, they could have all the office building lights turned off and sports ground stadiums, etc. And yet when you go to their house, they've got upward pointing lights in their backyard. And, <laughs> and I constantly sort of say to them, well, you have to be the model. You have to be the one that starts this. You know, you need to be the ones that are educating other people. And then, as you say, the international full-blown professional astronomy groups just, as you say, just keep building um, telescopes further and further away. But that's going to – even in Chile now, they, they realise that they're actually picking up streetlights from the nearest towns and um, it's becoming a problem. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, Chile nationally is recognized. Astronomy is one of the biggest things they have. I mean, they probably have the best observing sites in the world, and they want to preserve them. So they've got national laws. Now, how well these are enforced uh, and how well it stops growth. I know La Serena, which is near Cerro Tololo. I haven't actually not been there, but I know the director of that observatory. And he was very supportive. And he was very happy to have the item materials. And he got that town, which is a town comparable in size to Tucson, and a comparable distance from the observatory. He, they weren't as well developed as far as many lights as Tucson, but he's got them to at least modify things. Um, mm. And so, you know, and, and I was in one of my early articles, which I did not write, because, you know, I finally got better sense, is to go around and take pictures of a professional observatory buildings, all the bad lights they have on them. And publish up. Well, this is not going to win me any friends. So I better propagate that. I don't think we should do that, but we might want to talk to these people over time and get these changed. Some of which his own his own building where he worked in the own own office building at, at Kitt Peak National Observatory had these terrible lights, the same ones that are in the hospital mm. lights that they put on, and they eventually got changed over time. Yeah. And the other thing we learned is well, you can't ask somebody to change the lights they already put up. I mean, an occasional one you can, uh, but what you can do is then anytime the light comes down for whatever reason, or we're going to retrofit, then put up good lighting so that you hope that as, as it, time goes on, you gradually start replacing the bad with the good, some of which has happened. Mm. So you you mentioned just a second ago um, that it's not just astronomy that's going, you know, we can't just talk about astronomy being impacted by light pollution. And my partner, Fred Watson, uh, for a long time worked with um, the observatory up at Siding Spring Observatory in Coonabarabran. And, you know, they would go out and talk about the guidelines, which for a 100-kilometre radius around Siding Spring Observatory, you have to uh, comply with certain uh, lighting conditions. But... uh, Often when we would talk to people about them, they would say, well, you know, what's the big deal if we can't see one or two stars? What's the big deal? You know, you can, there's so many other stars in the sky. Why don't you just look at those? And so for those of us who weren't, you know, in touch with astronomy, we kind of lost the argument with light pollution a little bit. But as you said, we're really, our knowledge on light pollution is, is, is growing and growing. And you being in a medical background, I'm wondering, what your thoughts are of, of, on some of the, the science that's coming out now with, with human-centric studies on, on the effects of light? Well, there's an enormous amount, and, and I'm way behind the curve on it. And uh, one of the things we did do, uh, David and I insisted initially on, is that we're going to be extremely conservative on our claims about anything and always have proof about anything we claim and not make dramatic claims that the world's going to end tomorrow unless lights go, you know, go away and all this. And we also realize right off the bat, you're not going to have everybody turn all their lights off. It just isn't going to work. So you have to take a much more moderate approach. But there's certainly pretty good evidence that, are, that interrupting diurnal patterns, uh, in other words, the, when we evolve this, you know, creatures from, now, uh, you know, up to the, the Cro-Magnon man, as we're, you know, from 50 to 100,000 years ago, they're evolving. That cycle where we would go to, you know, go to sleep at, when the sun went down, get up when the sun came up is what we're pretty much programmed into and our genes haven't changed much. When you disrupt that by uh, having all kinds of lights at night or staying up late, et cetera, 
that you that your sleep patterns will you won't sleep as well. You have all kinds of other side effects, uh, possibly heart disease, possibly cancer, uh, certainly more industrial accidents, and this has been well documented. Now the question is, how much is this from light pollution outdoors, and how much is from indoor lighting that's disturbing our patterns? In other words. Filling on your computer, which I do before you go to bed, or fiddling your cell phone just before you go to bed, or getting up and doing a text message in the middle of the night. That probably, in those regards, is probably more harmful. But certainly, light pollution isn't very good. And there's growing evidence of tremendous effect upon the environment as far as the birds and animals that live at night. It turns out there are more nocturnal creatures than there are diurnal. You know, we're our diurnal creatures, so we don't realize the number of animals that are out wandering around the night because we're presumably in our bed sleeping. And they're greatly disturbed by the light. Sometimes it helps them, sometimes it harms them. And so this is beginning to come out. And as I say, I don't really up, up to date with all this. You know, there's some evidence in a good part of the world, the number of insects has fallen off tremendously. And while that initially sounds like a good thing, probably in the long term, it's not. And I think there's a, some evidence that a lot of this may be due to light pollution because it you know, affects different insect species differently. It affects the predators and the prey differently. You know, and we well know that moth species are changed by different moths flying around lights that are attracted to lights. Some are not. And the predators know the moths are around the lights, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, and you know, they know that plants will change their flowering habits if street lights are on all night long and so forth, and birds' migration patterns, and birds trying to nest at night when there's a bright light next to their nest in the tree, it's got to have an effect. Mm. I, I was at the uh, conference in Utah, the Allen, the Artificial Light at Night conference in Utah a couple of years ago, and remember hearing a, a talk uh, about bird strike, which is a you know particularly bad issue in America, and looking at your map of America at night, and, and basically see, and I'd love to know why. I've never never had an answer as to why this is, but you know, the uh, west coast of America and and inland is is a little bit darker than the east coast, and as the, the birds fly across, you, they they've actually got you know they use the weather um, radars. And they can track the birds that go across as well. And they basically see that as soon as they cross that fault line where there's the dark shade light um, line, the birds seem to just not make it further into the, you know, they, they get distracted by the light. It's, it's fascinating, actually. Um, there's so many ways this is impacting the environment. Yeah, some cities, uh, this is more on the East Coast, New York, for example, and uh, Toronto, I know, for example, both will turn off uh, lights, an awful lot of lights on tall um, skyscrapers during migrating season. And there's some lights well, they on are doing that. Huh? They are doing that. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yes, they are doing that. They've been pressured because, and there are groups, a very prominent group out of Toronto that goes that started going around collecting birds the next morning in migrating season that struck the building and died or circled around it and got exhausted and flopped on the ground and died and collected birds to show that this is a, a real issue. Uh, in the migrating time, once they settle down, they're not they're not attracted to the buildings, whether it affects their reproduction and when they decide to migrate and so forth. Uh, and there, you know, issues like the architectural lighting. Well, some 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 of the lights in buildings are simply office lights that are on because people are working. Well, that's a different issue than just lighting the building up for decoration. And then a lot of bridges have 
it's been less recently, but been lit, you know, lit with horrendous lights because people think it looks nice with light shining up in the air rather than you can have a low grade sparkle along your bridge span it isn't too disruptive and looks nice without upsetting the light going upward and not upsetting any kind of species. Uh, migrating salmon are attracted by lights on bridges, and this has been a problem. And so certain migration season on the West Coast on migrating rivers, they turn the lights off on the bridges, so the salmon will not be, you know, they hang around the bridges rather than continue on their migration path. Mm. We have a, a bridge in Victoria down near the, um, in, in Phillip Island, which is where the fairy penguin parade happens. And so every night these little penguins come in two minutes after sunset and, and go out three minutes before sunrise every day and there's thousands of these little tiny penguins. And so they're, they're highly uh, looked after. But there's also a lot of migratory shorebirds and so the bridge that you go across to get to Phillip Island, they turn off for I think it's for six weeks again during the migratory uh, season just so that the birds don't lose track of where they're meant to be going and, and get distracted or fly too long, etc. So, yeah, it, it, it is becoming something that councils and governments uh, and policymakers are actually becoming aware of and having to do things uh, to, to change old, old patterns, which is great. Yeah. So it kind of takes me to the next question as to where, where you think the future lies with, with this. What gives you well, hope? Well, what I hope, and I, and I, you know, I hope, Many years ago, I was able to give a talk in the Academy of Sciences, which is in San Francisco, and they have a very nice auditorium that is kind of like a planetarium. And uh, you can have along the walls low down, they have a silhouette of the city, and you can project the stars up there. And so, you know, I, and I would talk to the operator head and projected the sky like they would have seen in 1905. And then what we see now with all the lights, and, I'm, and then I had them saying, if we could restore the sky again, doing everything just right, I'd like to be able to return a lot of these lights. I firmly believe, and this is not going to happen probably in my lifetime, but that if we use the proper amount of lighting and we turned off all unnecessary lights and we directed lights properly in urban areas, that we could see the Milky Way in urban areas. Now, it wouldn't be a pristine dark sky site that we're going to get if you go out uh, you know, 100 miles from the city, but you could be, say, in an urban park, you know, a few hundred yards away from any buildings or street lights. And if the, if the, if the lighting was done right, uh, I think you could look up and see the Milky Way. Because I've been amazed that I've been in a couple of places. Uh, the one was Santa Monica, which is on the ocean by LA. And looking out one night, and I realized that half the sky was not too bad because, of course, it's the ocean. There's now all these lights from LA. And then I thought, geez, if we just toned down along the shoreline a little bit, it's amazing how much that sky returned. And I grew up in the Chicago area, and Chicago has Lake Michigan, which is a very large lake. And you really can't see the lights across the lake, and the lake's too wide. And so if you just toned the lights down along the lake initially, you could be on the, on the lake shore at night and see a good chunk of dark sky, at least overhead and toward the east. And so my goal would be, okay, first of all, Let's find prime dark sky sites like professional observatories or national parks that are dark now but are sort of in harm's way. Let's try to protect those permanently. And those that, uh, like, like some of the national parks, are really pretty nice places, but the towns nearby are pretty lousy. Let's get work on those towns to restore, you know, restore some dark skies 
And then let's slowly work on the suburban areas, the far suburban areas, that try to start restoring some dark skies and moving gradually toward the city. And don't allow the cities to put up bad lighting in the future. In other words, anything that needs to go up has to meet stringent standards. And we hopefully can gradually retrofit the bad stuff that's there. Mm. This is a real challenge. But, you know, is it's, that, is, is that part of the, the reason that the Dark Sky Places program was commenced? Just that. I whole... think so. You know, I was not involved in it. That was after my active time in the organization. I think that's the best thing IDA ever did. That is wonderful. And I, I think that was part of it because there's varying levels. I think one level is, less, you know, one of the things about astronomy, let's say, uh, why should we worry about losing, like if you're out at uh, Siding Springs, for example, and somebody says to you in, that, in the area around it, why should I worry about the losing? Well, uh, my response would be, well, there's, if you look at the requirements for a world-class leading observatory, there are fewer sites in the world that would qualify for that than there are virgin forests, because you have to have a dark sky site. It can't be encroached upon by anything. It has to be clear a good part of the time, and you have to have a road to be able to get to it. When you put all those things together, there aren't very many of these. And so the ones we have that are active, we, you know, we're not going to build any more of them probably on Earth. It's too expensive to use space telescopes for any time, so we need to protect the ones we have. And then, of course, we could say the same thing about national parks. And more people relate to that because they're more well known um, and more accessible. You can go and camp, and you can absolutely. walk. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why would you drive to a national park? Let's say there's some urban national. Some, you know, for example, if you go to uh, in the east coast of the United States, there's a wonderful uh, national park called Shenandoah National Park, which is in eastern Virginia, and it's beautiful, rolling hills and forests and rivers and lakes and all. It's just absolutely magnificent. And you drive along it, you can go camping. You know, a lot of people in it because it's an urban part of it. <laughs> but you could still walk off you know, the trail for a couple hundred yards and feel wonderful. Yet if you come back into the parking lot at night, you can look over and see this enormous glow to the east from all these huge cities, which aren't that far, you know, not that close. Um, so that definitely reduces so your ambience. And, and, and the cities that are right next to the park you know, you might drive into some place that has a terrible lighting and the and the hotel you're staying in or the gas station. So I'm saying, why don't we go to those cities um, and try to tone those down? And actually, the National Park Service is now working with IDA and on their own to do this. And there's some other parks, like Bryce National Park in the U.S. and Utah, actually not too far from Salt Lake City, is a wonderful dark sky site. And they have only a couple of small communities nearby. Yet those communities are terrible lighting on them. The last time I was there, three or four years ago. And it wouldn't take much to retrofit a couple hundred lights and make an enormous improvement. So that's the kind of thing I think we should start at first and then, you know, move out. And like the amateur astronomers, well, you know, it's too big a battle. I can't do it. And I said, well, let's just start one thing. You know, just switch out your porch light or turn it off. And you accomplish one thing today and then let's go for a bigger thing tomorrow. Mm. It's a good point. And um, I was, oh, I just had a really good thought. I've gone completely blank. The, oh, what what is your response or what has been your response when you've talked to groups and uh, particularly with communities? Uh, for example, I've been working with a, a, a park that is very keen to be designated, but they have some residents close by. And the residents 
reaction to this, even though they're highly, you know, conservation, preservation community in many other ways, suddenly feel afraid that they are having their right to light being taken away from them. Have you, did you experience that? Oh, yes. Yeah, not directly, but you see that, well, the, the classic example in, in, in this country is the Endangered Species Act, and which is not right in the lighting, but if some creature that most people that live in the area would agree that would like to protect are afraid to actually have any designation because now the federal government, at least up in, until recent times, would come in and tell you what you could or couldn't do in your land. You might not be able to build a guest house, et cetera, et cetera, because it's endangered species. And so people really bristle because they worry about what kind of intrusion. And uh, and, and we'll get the thing is, one of the things that adamant people will say, well, I have a right to do whatever I want with my lights. And my response would be, you, know, you don't want to get an argument. That's fine as long as you don't affect somebody else. But since your light leaves your property, you affect somebody else. So your light, you're right, like anything else, is not absolute. But better yet, what do you want your lights for? And let's see what we can do to work out that so that you have use for your light and it's not causing initial problems. And if there's a small number, let's find some way we can make it worth your while to do this. Now, it doesn't always work. But at least that's the only approach you can do. Mm. So somebody says... Uh, I, I want to feel safe when I go out to my barn at night. Therefore, I'm going to have my, you know, barnyard light on all night long because I'll feel safe. I'm saying, well, why don't we have a situation where the, the barnyard light is shielded so it shines down? You get actually more light on the ground. And let's put a switch in there so you turn it on when you want to go out, and then you turn it off when you come back in. Mm. It, it, it is very much about winning hearts and minds and just finding practical solutions. And this is the thing with light pollution. There are practical solutions. It's not, you know, it's not a 500-year process of giving up everything. It's not like plastics. It's not lead. This is something that we can immediately change and and do. The solution is totally knowable. It's immediately solvable if you turn off the light in theory. And really, I've said this for ever since I've been involved in this. If you can't solve light pollution in any kind of meaningful fashion, you can't solve any of the other ones because this is the simplest one there is. It's not simple in the sense of so much of it, but it's simple in the sense the solution is so well known. Mm. Um, yeah, and that is a hopeful thing and, and something that I have seen communities come together because it is something that they can impact and change uh, together as well, which is lovely. Mm. So, Tim, I'm going to start winding this up, but I, I ask everybody what their favourite night sky experience was. And I happen to know that you have an asteroid <coughs> named after you, asteroid 6398 Tim Hunter, discovered by Carolyn Schumacher, very um, well-known. Is she amateur astronomer? She's certainly a... Well, she is technically an amateur astronomer. She worked with her husband, Gene Schumacher, as a professional geologist. But she's the one that they discovered She's the one that scanned the place and actually discovered the asteroids and the comets. So while she has no formal training in amateur in amateur or professional astronomy, you know, she's accomplished so much. She's literally, I think, a professional astronomer. I mean, it yeah. depends on how you define the term. If you define the term as a PhD astronomer working in a research institution, no. The term that somebody has contributed to the astronomical literature and the astronomical discovery, then she's a prime example of professional astronomer. Wonderful lady, too. Yeah. 
um, and they have a history with with Australia, which I, I understand they were in Australia actually when Jean died. Now I think that's correct. In fact, a, I remember yeah. a very good friend of mine is a, a dear friend of the shoemakers is David Levy, and he called me yes. that morning when he heard about it, and it was just because I knew them personally, and mm. uh, and they were just they were wonderful to me. They were world famous by the time I got to know them, but unpretentious, nice people, real characters. And of course, uh, Gene, um, you know, contributed enormously. I mean, Nobel level type of work. I mean, he's the one that proved meteor impacts on the earth and one that got the whole concept of that. Um, in addition to searching for things that might be killer asteroids. But that was Gene's concept way before anybody else thought of it. Mm, what a legacy to leave the world. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. So you uh, and before we started recording, you mentioned to me that you've been out to Australia and uh, visited Siding Spring and Coonabarabra. And I wonder if that's your best dark sky memory, or do you have somewhere else? No, actually, it, I, I'll give you two memories. I know you want to wind up. One is I went uh, in a, a tour with a, a magazine called Sky and Telescope, a very nice amateur astronomy, the, the leading amateur astronomy magazine in the U.S., uh, along with Astronomy Magazine. But anyway, up in the Sky and Telescope Tour in 1986 to see Comet Halley, which was supposed to be better from the Southern Hemisphere. And we spent a couple of days out in uh, Ayers Rock. I'm not sure what the term, uh, what the proper name for that is now. Mm -hmm. And the, there was a beautiful resort. It had just been completed there. Wonderful. There's nothing else there but the resort in a very tiny little town. And the resort was designed to be as environmentally friendly as possible. And this is the first time I ever saw this. If you wanted to leave, you know, it's very hot and sticky there. If you wanted to leave your room and, and have your room key with you, you took it out of a thing in the wall or turned off your air conditioner. So your air conditioner wasn't running while you're out doing your touristy things. However, the lighting was globes that were unshielded. And they had floodlight shining on a sculptor in the middle of the courtyard in this thing. And you couldn't walk outside and see, you know, a second magnitude star in this resort, yeah. which is the middle of nowhere, literally 100 miles from any other place. And the resort was an unbelievable eyesore five miles away when you went over by the rock. To We would have an amateur observing at night with some Australian amateur astronomers. And we look over and see this ugly, unbelievably ugly glow in this resort that was designed to be environmentally friendly, but nobody thought about the night sky. It was my first inkling about how poorly the night sky is thought. It was not thought about it at all in astronomical you know, in, in, in environmental terms. That's my sort of terrible story. That The wonderful story was about that same time frame, a friend and I went to Germany in 85, 86, uh, New Year, Christmas, New Year interval. And he had, his wife was German and he had been stationed in Germany as a military officer, he went back to visit his wife and stay with his family. And his wife had a cousin who was 16 year old, who spoke very good English. And she would talk to James, my friend and me, all the time about stuff. And we were always talking about astronomy and night skies. And she just thought that was the stupidest thing she ever heard. So I never <laughs> heard about this because Germany is a lot of light pollution. The weather is mm. terrible a lot of times. So the next summer, she happens to come over to visit in Tucson to visit her cousin, James's wife, Yuda. So one night we, in the middle of July, which is normally storming here, we drive down to where the observatory, which I just invested in the land was, look at the land and then the way back, we decided to stop at a local observing site on a national uh, forest 
that the Amateur Astronomy Club had. And it happened to be clear, and we happened to get out of the car, and there's this clear summery Milky Way was overhead in a clear dark sky site. You know, from horizon to horizon, it's a stunning Milky Way. She gets out of the car, um, Mia was her name, and she looked up and she saw this Milky Way. She couldn't believe it. She was just stunned. Mm -hmm. What's that? Well, that's the Milky Way. She could, she'd never seen like that in her entire life. And there were some amateur telescopes sitting up, and she went over and looked through them. And she, we couldn't get her back in the car. We were getting tired. <laughs> like, it was just, she was so stunned. She said, now, she said to us, now I understand what you and James are talking about. Now I understand it. Mm. And I always thought, boy, if I could ever drag every other person in was, that didn't want to understand about light pollution, my sky, I drag them out and give them that kind of experience would change attitudes. It's very tough to do. So that's my dark sky story. Yeah. And it's really nice to have shared it with someone who hadn't appreciated it. I mean, that I, I often ask people that question and, you know, they, they could be by themselves and that could still be really an indelible memory um, that's impacted them. But to share it with someone who hasn't experienced it before is just, it's just heart racing. It actually. Was just yeah. It was just mm -hmm. So stunning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was sort of used to singing at our sky. So, you know, it's not too far from Tucson, and, you know, made efforts and so on, but she had never seen that before. So growing up in an urban area in a country that doesn't have real good weather most of the time. Mm. And that becomes normal. And, that, and, and, and I think that's one of the biggest fears that we dark sky conservationists have is that if we just get used to urban night skies being, you know, if, if it's normal just to see 27 stars in the sky, then we won't know what we're missing out on. We won't know what we're losing. Uh, and that's why we, why we do what we do, I guess. Hmm. Well, that's a real fear of a lot of environmentalists in all kinds of ways is there's a generational yeah. memory loss. In other words, I drive, I say, through a part of Northern California. Well, the forest is beautiful, nice. Somebody grew up there, so this is nothing like it used to be, you know, because they, they have the memory of it, but I don't. And so we, we gradually, you know, you become desensitized to what's yes. happening to you. Mm, that's true. Anyway, I have to say it's been absolute delight talking with you, Tim. And I have to ask you before I forget, did you ever build your telescope? Oh, yes, I, I have. In fact, I, 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 this is a hobby, totally run amok. In my little amateur astronomy bio, I always say I'm an example of somebody's hobby is totally run amok uh, mm -hmm. because I have a very large observ amateur astronomy observatory complex. And I have three telescopes actually run remotely from Tucson from that complex. Um, wow. So I can open those up and take images and close them down. Um, of course, that's fraught with difficulties because you always have to be prepared to get in the car and drive for an hour in the middle of the night if something doesn't quite work out like it's supposed to. <laughs> uh, best intentions. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, I'm still. And anybody's interested, it's the grasslandsobservatory.com. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. Well, on that note, I'm going to invite our audience to send any questions that they have to podcast at darkskytraveler.com.au or look at your website again, Tim. What was it? Grasslandsobservatory.com. www.grasslandsobservatory.com. Fantastic. Thanks very much for your time, Tim, and thank you really for all the work that you've done, the, the legacy that you're going to leave and the motivation that you've, you've created in lots of people around the world to help preserve the night sky. Thank you. Thank you, Marnie. Well, I appreciate all your support and all the good work you're doing there. Mm -hmm.